welcome to the Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I'm your host. On this episode, I speak with Moro Kazi, co-founder of Researchably. Researchably is a biomedical search engine that uses artificial intelligence to save researchers time, Moro says up to 90%, searching for scientific papers. As you use Researchably, it learns which papers are most relevant for your search queries. You can improve its results by training it, making it a highly personalized virtual research assistant. I connected with Moro a few weeks ago and was impressed with Researchably's focus and approach. This is a young startup, but they've taken the time to understand their target market and its needs, build out a technical solution, and wrap it in an easy-to-use interface that fits into a researcher's existing workflows. I spoke with Moro about how Researchably got started, how it helps researchers find relevant literature faster, and the challenges they're working to overcome to continue their growth. This episode is brought to you by BenchSci. BenchSci uses artificial intelligence to reduce the cost of scientific experiments. Use it to find research antibodies up to 24 times faster than using PubMed or Google Scholar. Just enter a protein of interest and filter by technique, organism, tissue, or 12 other options. BenchSci returns only relevant published figures and products. It's free for researchers in academic and nonprofit institutions. You can sign up at benchside.com. If you work in industry, just use the contact form on benchside.com to reach out for a demo. And now, on to the interview. Hi, Moral. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Simon. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. No, it's great to have you. We uh, connected a couple weeks ago, and after that conversation, I thought it would be great to go into a little bit more detail and maybe record that and let other people hear what you guys are doing because you're in the very early stages, but you've had quite a bit of success. But before I get into that, let's start with a high-level summary of what Researchably is in a nutshell for people who may not be familiar with the problem you're trying to solve or how machine learning can address that problem. So what is Researchably? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, the brief description is that Researchably is a search engine for biomedical researchers. So we help them find the information that they need to do all of their science. Um, more specifically, we help them find the research papers that they need. Um, and the reason that this is a problem is because uh, technology has really lagged behind in this, in this field. Um, there's a lot of sort of more keyword-based search engines. And even though some people are doing some really smart stuff, um, we, we know that we can use artificial intelligence and machine learning to really make a leap improvement in, in how researchers access this information, find this information, um, and uh, essentially find the research papers that are really relevant to them, um, that can really address their problems. Um, and the reason that this is a huge problem is because researchers actually are wasting a lot of time to this right now. So in our research, we found that um, researchers are wasting anywhere between three to uh, nine hours a, a, every single week looking for relevant research papers. And so our goal is to cut that, you know, at least by 90%, if not more. Was that 90% as in 90%? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know, our, our ultimate vision is to perhaps create this super intelligent uh, system that can actually sort of instantly give you the answers that you need. 
Um, but in the short term, we can we think we can really bring that down by around ninety percent within the next few years. Help me understand why existing solutions like PubMed and Google Scholar don't solve the problem that you're trying to solve. What created the need for machine learning where we already have existing search engines for biomedical research papers? Sure, sure. So um, it really comes down to what's the type of technology that you're using and how focused you are on this problem. Um, so whereas Google Scholar has some pretty, pretty strong technology, um, really smart algorithms powering their search, um, it's a general literature search. So, you know, it's just as useful for the humanities as it is for an engineer or, um, you know, uh, a biomedical researcher. Um, so, so where we really can bring in an advantage is that our algorithms are trained uniquely on biomedical data. Um, we have the privilege of using things such as medical ontologies um, and, uh, you know, medical dictionaries to, to train our algorithms. Um, which we wouldn't be able to do if we were trying to address the entire research industry. Um, on the side of PubMed, um, really PubMed, you know, PubMed is amazing in, in that it's essentially a repository for, for the world's biomedical research. Um, so I, you know, I definitely think that, you know, if anything, we're very thankful to, to all the work that they do. Um, but in our experience as users ourselves, we've just seen that really their search, uh, their search systems are, are just really not that powerful. Um, very often when you run a search on PubMed, you find that perhaps the keywords um, uh, were too broad or, or um, you know, you're finding papers that are not actually addressing your, your, your research question at hand. So you mentioned that, that this, in your experience, was it your experience that led you to you and your co-founders to create researchably what inspired you to come up with the product sure so we actually had um quite a interesting founding story um it all started as a little side project with a uh, you know between there's there's three of us there's three co-founders so it's me mauro and um the, my other two co-founders are magic and Pashemic, and we just wanted to build something fun to be honest. Um, and in looking for information for how to build things, we were undergraduate students. Um, we realized that just searching for papers was a quite a painful experience. Um, you know, as, as early students, we were used to sort of, you know, a nice looking products that worked quite effectively on the consumer side of things. And we thought that Google Scholar really wasn't doing a good job for it. But we didn't have a life sciences background. So we were searching for things around physics and computer science. Um, so we were using Google Scholar. We weren't used, really using PubMed. And we started developing um, some tools that we thought could address this problem. So for example, we were thinking of how can we leverage artificial intelligence and social media information to help us find which are the papers that the um, renowned, renowned people in their fields think are most um, you know, of the highest quality or perhaps you know, most relevant to us. So we did a couple of prototypes around that. Um, we, we launched a prototype that essentially when you were searching on Google, it was a browser extension um, that would tell you if a paper was relevant to you or not um, by, by looking at your query. Um, it was some basic stuff at the beginning. Uh, but as we, as we developed this, we started getting support from, from some of our university and some mentors. And, and we learned by talking to people that, that um, that actually in the biomedical industry, our tool could have a much bigger impact. 
um, in terms of positive impact to the world, um, and and certainly in terms of the number of people that it would be helping, um, and the size of the problem. So, for example, 33% of all papers are are published in the in the biomedical industry. Um, it's by far the largest segment. And so that's when we decided that even though that didn't align with our backgrounds, we were much in, more interested in building something that would have a much bigger impact. And that's when we decided to focus on the biomedical industry. Um, and the reason that I said that we experienced the pain point of using PubMed is because actually when, when we decided to do that, we thought, well, if we're going to build up a solution for biomedical researchers, we first have to be biomedical researchers. So we jumped into working with a startup called Eifert Health. Um, shout out to them. They, they're really cool. They're based in, in Canada as well, actually. Um, so definitely go check them out. They use machine learning for um, uh, depression diagnosis and treatment aids. Um, we can talk a little bit more about them later. But anyways, we, we jumped into working with them, essentially running um, three systematic reviews for them that they did. So here we are, three guys that have never, you know, searched in the biomedical field before, um, running systematic reviews that we're going to be used uh, for the creation of clinical trials. We spent a few months doing that, and that's when we really, really learned the pain point. Uh, we, you know, we had to manually filter through nearly 10,000 different papers and clinical trials. We had to learn the nuances of how to best craft search queries to really obtain the results that you need. Um, and that really gave us an understanding of how we had to build a solution, both from the user experience point of view, but also from the algorithms point of view. It, you always hear, right? I've spoken to a lot of startups and when you hear people who started by scratching their own itch, so started by solving a problem that they have, those tend to be really good foundations for businesses because you've got immediate product market fit, at least in one domain. So you extend it into biomedicine, but you were originally solving your own problem. So you knew the, how that problem needed to be solved. And I imagine over time, the technology changed and improved quite a bit. So could you give listeners an idea of how the technology works today, both from a user perspective? So what happens when I go to Researchably? How do I use it and what does it do for me? And then maybe we can dig into the back end, nothing proprietary, but just a sense of how it actually all comes together on the back end. But let's start with the user experience. Let's say I'm a user. What's the problem that takes me to researchably and what's the process that I go through once I'm there? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, today what you do if you're a biomedical researcher, you know, let's say you're starting to write a paper and you need to learn a little bit about a particularly new field or subfield. So you'll, run, you'll go into PubMed, you'll run a search, you'll find that you have too many things, but then perhaps you notice that a keyword appears in a paper, so you'll run a second search for the different keyword, then you might go into a paper and start jumping from citation to citation until you eventually actually land on, on what you need. Um, so the way that we sort of revamp that experience is that if you go into Researchably today, you run your first search as you would usually on PubMed, um, but then we have a, a a system where our AI asks you to tell it for 10 different papers whether that paper is relevant to you or not. And, and that's a simple thumbs up, thumbs down system, like a like-dislike system. Um, and essentially by rating those 10 papers, um, we're able to then cut out at least 50% of those irrelevant results and surface the papers that are actually relevant to you. So essentially you're training an AI system on the fly for every single search to figure out what is actually truly relevant to you. Um, and that's a really powerful experience because number one, of course, it gives you really uh, much more relevant results. Um, but number two, because um, 
in, you know, from talking to users, we learned that they really like to be in control of the algorithm. They like to know that the algorithm is really taking into account their explicit, um, you know, inform the explicit labels of whether a paper is relevant to them or not. That's so. Let me let me try to understand a little bit too how that's working on the back end. So you the users are providing feedback on every result that they get, or at least the initial ten. And then yes. the system learns based on the features of the articles that have been rated thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm -hmm. What kind of features are you using as signals? Is it strictly text or are there other features that are being implicitly rated when a user thumbs down a result? Yeah, so I can't really dive into that much detail in terms of this, but what I can say is that we're using text. So we're definitely looking into the paper's title, the paper's abstract, um, in some cases the full text, but not always. Um, and we're using also all the available metadata. Um, and then we enrich those papers, um, every single paper, with a lot of other data sets that we have either created ourselves or sourced from other, from other places. Um, so it's, it's a lot is reliant on the text itself, um, but also there's a lot of other features that go into those models. I think one of the really interesting things about the way that we approach things is that since you are literally training an AI model on the fly, um, and this is all cloud-based, of course, we had to make it so that it was you know, very computationally inexpensive so that it could be really fast. Um, and that was one of the bigger challenges that we, had to, that we had to tackle was how can we make this system work as effectively as possible, essentially cut down the largest number of irrelevant results we could without having, the user, having to make the user either put in a lot of effort in terms of having to label a lot of papers or having to make the user um, wait a lot of time for the algorithm to train on the fly. Um, and in order to do that, we've been able to use, um, you know, shallow neural networks um, that essentially, I think our prediction time now is around 30 milliseconds. So, you know, in the blink of an eye, you have trained an AI model that is, you know, super specific for you. That's great. I want to get into the challenges in a second and how you overcame them. But from a user's perspective, this is part of their flow. They don't have to get out of their current flow. It really enhances the way that they currently search for information, if I'm interpreting you correctly. Yeah, exactly. So that was, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's really sort of one of our North Stars. Um, we, from, from working with all these researchers, what we've really learned is that a lot of solutions out there try to re revolutionize the way that they do research. And um, people don't really like that, and it's for a particular reason, right? We're, we're talking about really busy people um, who just want to do things, the same things they do today, but much better and much faster. Um, and so when we think about our solutions and our technology and the way that we develop those algorithms, it's always from the frame of reference of how can we take an activity that the researcher is always doing um, and just make it faster. So definitely this idea of labeling those papers and then finding the most relevant results is very much inspired by something that researchers do a lot, which is citation jumping or, you know, um, adding a keyword to a, to a query after you've run it a few times, that sort of thing. I have a, a question that I, I, this is something that's a personal interest question here, and I don't know how much listeners are going to enjoy talking about this, but I'd love to just understand how, what kind of data feedback loops you have in place. So you talked about every user effectively gets their own model that they're training that helps them in particular. But are you taking any signals in order to make your solution overall smarter so that perhaps you can anticipate 
what papers would be most interesting to users based on the behavior of users like them. And I ask only because some of the most successful business models in AI that I've seen have some kind of data feedback loop mechanism where the platform becomes more and more uh, powerful and also harder to topple by by uh, by competitors because you've got these data feedback mechanisms in place and you're getting better as you add more users. Are there any components like that to the technology or to your approach? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and w- again, when we're in a sort of privileged position because what we obtain from our users is very explicit, um, a very explicit relationship between this is my research question in terms of a search query. And these are the papers that actually answer that question. Um, and then we get even more information, right? Um, in certain cases, if the user has given us permission, um, we we know their background, um, so we know that we know, you know, if they're a postdoc in academia or if they're a biotech researcher in industry, um, and all that context um, really helps us essentially link those two things: which are the pieces of content that actually answer a research question. Hmm. Um, and let me just say, we have a lot of data feedback loops embedded into the system. Again, this is one of the things that we're a little bit careful about um, how, how open we're about it. Of course. Uh, but but what, at the same time, we actually haven't um, yet uh, essentially turned those on. Um, so we're actually not using them in the system just yet. And the reason behind that is that we want to be very careful about, and, and we're working with users directly in terms of understanding um, how would the experience of something like that work? Because for example, let's say that I have, um, you know, a researcher in oncology working in a European university um, and we learn their query. So we understand that the research question was answered by a few, by a few papers. Um, and then we have another oncologist working um, for a pharmaceutical company in uh, India, say. Um, so something that we could do is extrapolate that the papers that answered the European researchers' questions will also under, uh, answer the Indian researchers' questions. Um, but that might not always be the case, of course. And that's a very simple example, but this could get a lot more intricate. So one of the things that we're doing over the next few months is like really, really fundamentally testing which are the feedback loops that, um, that are coherent with what the users expect. Um, and how do we communicate that to the users so that they understand what's happening? Because our users really like that the algorithm is sort of more explicit than what they're used to from other products. And so we want to make sure that we maintain that level of transparency. That makes sense. It could be something even like, I don't want to get into product brainstorming here, but kind of like <laughs> people like you also liked these articles, yes, that, yes. something like that. Um, but let's not go too far down that path. We'll spend the rest of the podcast brainstorming product features, which I love to do, but probably not of interest to the, our audience. I wanted to better understand before we go on here, who your users are. When we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you had talked about a couple of different users and where the, the most value seems to be for pharma companies currently. So who are your users and what categories do they tend to fall in? Sure. So we, we focus on, on biomedical researchers that are either working in biotech companies. So that could be someone like Genentech, a company like Genentech, um, in pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, all the large household names, Sanofi, GSK, Pfizer, um, or in academia. Um, so in academia, we mostly focus on postdocs, um, people who have really been in the field for quite a while, or we have some, some PhDs that are using the product, but not too many. Um, so essentially really it's, it's any biomedical researcher, um, 
I, I think a good way to think of our of our user base is anyone who is using PubMed um, can use us um, and would be satisfied by, by using us. Uh, we like to focus on biotechs and pharmas because we think that the pain point there is much bigger and we can add a lot more value there. Um, but clearly we, you know, just from, from the work that we've done with uh, academic bio, uh, researchers, they, they certainly see the value in the product as well. Great. So tell me a little bit about about your trajectory. I mean, you guys didn't start that long ago. Where are you at now with the product from a product development and commercialization standpoint? So we're at a stage where we think we have a, you know, quite a good stab at the technology. The technology certainly works and we've been able to prove this through a set of pilots. Um, We were about to publish a a poster on, a conference poster on this, but we unfortunately had to put a pause to that uh, on that. But essentially we've proven that our technology in many cases uh, has superhuman performance at looking at a research question and finding which are the research papers that actually answer that question. So so we're very happy about that. Um, The next step in our trajectory is now to to really refine our user experience so um, so that researchers can easily access the power of that technology. So right now we have uh, in the order of hundreds of users um, who are actively using researchably. Um, but what we find is that many times they are they don't access that main system of ours, our our AI system. Um, they only use the sort of basic search. Uh, so so that's what we're focused on for the next few months. It's really cracking that user experience, and that's why we're doing a lot of um, you know user interviews and usability sessions. And I love those; those are super fun because uh, you know you essentially get to see researchers using your product and learn from what they, their work is and, and that's super fun. Um, and then only once we're super happy with where the product is at, then we're going to really jump into commercialization. So that should be in the next six months. The user, your comment about watching users use your product is so key. And I think it's very easy for people to get excited about ideas and try to implement. But ultimately, when you get users to tell you what they want and then you watch them using that thing and you observe it in real time in real life that is worth so many brainstorming sessions because they're literally telling you build this thing and then you see them using it you're like okay that that legitimately is legitimately is something that that they use and that they find value in it makes a world of difference and what we found is is not just that the value is in actually learning from what they need, learning from how to improve the product. But so many of our power users we've gotten because of that conversation, because of showing them that, you know, we are really interested in building something for, from them, for them, sorry. And then those are the people who end up going to their colleagues and tell them to use us. Um, so yeah, definitely usability yeah. testing sessions are the way to go. Yeah. And early adopters love to be involved with the product development process and love to tell their friends about it. So what are some of the challenges that you've faced so far developing the product? Certainly at first it was our lack of domain expertise. Um, That's something that we we knew was going to be super hard. And that's why the first thing we did was what I told you, which is, you know, go work with this startup, experience a pain point for ourselves. Um, and then build a humongous network of, of experts in the field of all sorts. So we work with a lot of everything from, you know, medical specialists to people who have been top level managers at pharma to people who are now in the ranks of pharma, you know, working on the bench sort of thing. Um, so I think that that has by far been the biggest problem. Um, and then second of all, the technology side of things, because, you know, 
obviously in this day and age, there's so many generic algorithms and, you know, there's incremental improvements that you can, that you can make by, by using all these libraries that are out there. But the reality is that just off the shelf algorithms really don't cut it. Um, and once again, you know, we're not PhDs in computer science. We're just three really hardworking guys. <laughs> so, so it's been very much a process of, of trial and error, of iterating, of reading every single paper out there on the subject of you know, using natural language processing for, for medical search, um, and of really understanding how the user interacts now with search solutions and how we could create a, a, a technology that fit that workflow, but improved it significantly. Yeah, it's, it's like all the Lego pieces are out there and it's how you put the Lego pieces together to make something unique and then scale, something that can actually scale. That's probably the next yeah. challenge on the horizon. So what's your vision for the product? Let's say, where do you hope to be six months from now and then maybe a year from now? And I won't go any farther than that because who knows what the future holds. I mean, this technology moves so fast, but let's say, you know, six months out and, and 12 months out, what do you guys, where do you hope to be? What do you hope the product's capable of doing? Sure, sure. So certainly over the next six months, we want to see significant traction. So in the order of uh, thousands and at least tens of thousands of users by, by say December time. Um, but like I said, you know, in order to get there, we're not going to, to you know, do a massive push for users until we're super happy with whether where the product is at. Um, in, in, in terms of a year out, I think we still have a, a challenge in terms of solidifying our business model um, and what's that going to look like. We want to make sure that it aligns with our users' uh, needs. So for example, one of the things that, that one of our core beliefs is that we don't think um, academia is something that should, you know, we should be making money from. Um, we should be helping those users. So, it, you know, we should just be giving value because that's something that society needs. Um, so, so let me just say that, yeah, that'll be a challenge, but I'm sure that we can address it. Um, so yeah, product market fit and then business model <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> just the, just the slight problem of product market fit and business model. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Listen, I, I, I really appreciate your time. We're going to wrap it up just to being aware of the time here in a couple of minutes. But before I do that, is there anything else you wanted to let listeners know about any questions that I didn't ask you that you maybe thought I should have asked you? Hmm. Let me see. Well, I guess, you know, uh, you know, researchably is a weird startup in that we perhaps don't check many of the checkboxes that people expect. Um, you know, we're making a product for researchers, even though we're not researchers ourselves. Um, you know, we are, we decided to go quote unquote niche into the biomedical industry rather than stay broad and try to tackle a huge market of all research fields. Um, but everything is working out so far. And, and people, the people who we talk to, the investors and mentors we talk to really seem to get what we're doing. And I think a large part of that has just been that we took a long time about around a year to just fully understand the problem and fully understand our users. So for anyone out there who's listening to this and is perhaps either on a, working on an early stage startup or just has a few ideas on their mind, I cannot encourage you anymore, like enough to, to just really take the time to understand what you're going to do before you jump into it because it makes a huge difference as you move forward. Yeah, and 
Look, don't be so hard on yourself. Some of the best innovations, most of the best innovations come from outsiders to an industry because they aren't set in the mindset of everybody who's worked in that industry for a long period of time. You've clearly done your homework and picking a niche is great because it allows you to focus. So I think, I mean, based on what I've heard so far and our conversations previously and your trajectory, I think there's a lot of success ahead. So thank you very much. Before we wrap it up, where can people learn more about Researchably, follow you guys, maybe meet you in person? Sure. So, so we're, you can find out more about us on researchably.com. Uh, you can also go ahead and try out our search engine. It's open for everyone. Um, you can definitely get in touch with me on Mauro, that's M-A-U-R-O, at researchably.com. That's my personal email. Shoot me an email if you want to talk about anything. Um, and that we're actually moving out to the Bay Area in early June. We'll be based in Berkeley. So if you're around there and you want to get coffee to talk about anything, again, shoot me an email. I'm out at researchably.com. We always love to meet new people doing on interesting stuff. Mauro? Thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. I think listeners learned a lot about the startup process and how to launch a startup process in AI related to drug discovery. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And I look forward to keeping track of your progress. It's been super fun, Simon. I really appreciate the opportunity as well. And definitely stay in touch. You just listened to my conversation with Moro Kazi of Researchably. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to catch future episodes, be sure to subscribe. Just look for Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery in your favorite podcast player. Then hit the subscribe button. Until our next episode, be well and work smart.